Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit. On behalf of all of us at Cardio Nerds, we are thrilled to bring to you our Decipher the Guideline series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and created for educational purposes only. This series was developed by the Cardio Nerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college student through advanced fellows with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bazanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance along the way. So friends, join us as we get to learn about the heart failure guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. And now, let's get nerdy. The following question refers to section 2.1 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Keck School of Medicine USC medical student and cardio nerds intern Hirsch Elhen. Answered first by Mount Sinai Hospital Cardiology Fellow and cardio nerds fit trialist Dr. Jason Finman. And then by expert faculty Dr. Beatham Boskert. Dr. Boskert is the Mary and Gordon Kane Chair, Professor of Medicine, Director of the Winter Center for Heart Failure Research, and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. She is former president of HFSA, former senior associate editor for Circulation, current editor-in-chief of GACC Heart Failure. Dr. Boskert was the vice chair of the writing committee for the 2022 Heart Failure Guideline. Dr. Boskert, it is an honor to have you here with us. It's a great pleasure to be with you at Cardio Nerds. What a fantastic platform for timely and insightful conversations in cardiology and heart failure. Great. Thank you so much, Ala. So, Dr. Boscourt, our first question today is about a 23-year-old man who presents to his primary care physician for an annual visit. His father was diagnosed with idiopathic cardiomyopathy at 40 years of age. His blood pressure in clinic is 146 over 90. And he's a personal trainer who exercises daily, including both weightlifting and cardio. He denies any anabolic steroid use. He's an active tobacco smoker, approximately half a pack a day, and review of systems is negative for symptoms. What stage of heart failure most appropriately describes his current status? Option A is stage A. Option B is stage B. Option C is stage C. Option D is stage D. And option E is none of the above. So Jason, I would love your help figuring out how to categorize this young patient of ours. Absolutely. Thanks for a great question, Hirsch. So the correct answer for this is A, stage A of heart failure. Overall, the ACC and AHA stages of heart failure are designed to really emphasize the development and progression of disease with more advanced stages and progression being associated with reduced survival. So stage A heart failure is where patients are at risk for heart failure, but without any current or previous symptoms or signs of heart failure, and without any structural or functional heart disease or abnormal biomarkers. At-risk patients include those with 
hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, exposure to cardiotoxic agents, maybe genetic variants for cardiomyopathy, or a family history of cardiomyopathy. Stage B heart failure is the pre-heart failure stage, where patients are without any current or previous symptoms or signs of heart failure, but do have at least one of the following. They could have structural heart disease, reduced left or right ventricular systolic function, ventricular hypertrophy, chamber enlargement, maybe wall motion abnormalities or valvular heart disease. They could have evidence of increased filling pressures, or they have risk factors and increased natriuretic peptide levels, or they have persistently elevated cardiac troponin in the absence of any alternative diagnosis. Stage C heart failure. This really indicates symptomatic heart failure, where patients have current or previous symptoms or signs of heart failure. Stage D This is what we call advanced heart failure. These are patients with marked heart failure symptoms that interfere with their daily life and have either recurrent hospitalizations despite attempts to optimize their guideline-directed medical therapy. Our therapeutic interventions at each stage, they really aim to modify risk factors for patients with stage A heart failure. They treat risk of structural heart disease to prevent heart failure for stage B. And for stages C and D, we're aiming to reduce the symptoms, morbidity, and mortality. So given this patient's family and social histories, along with the clinical findings of elevated blood pressure, he's best classified as having stage A or at risk for heart failure. Main takeaway from this question is that it's really important to identify patients who are at risk for heart failure early on to help modify risk factors and prevent disease progression. Dr. Boskurt, with all of your expertise, how do you use the heart failure ACC uh, stages to really address how you're going to treat patients and how you're, what your approach is to them when you see them in a clinic? So this is a great case and a great discussion. Thank you for the introduction, for the concept. I think we are at a crossroad for management of heart failure, very similar to what cancer has gone through in the last two decades. Specifically, when the AHA ACC have developed the stages of heart failure, the intent was to emphasize prevention with recognition of risk factors, risk factor modification, treatment of risk, and potentially recognizing symptomatic stages such as stages C and D and uh, being able to then refer patients in a timely manner for advanced therapies for stage D. The concept made sense, was widely adopted by the specialists, but not understood by the non-specialists or translated well to the patients partly because the nomenclature itself had the alphabetical order, A, B, C, D, and it did not specify the stages as well as cancer did, such as uh, using the terminology of precancer. Everybody understands precancer. Everybody understands the necessity to screen for precancer. Everybody understands the necessity to treat precancer. But heart failure even though the burden of heart failure is one of the highest disease states in the general population, was not recognized as an entity needing to be screened for. And more importantly, it was not recognized that it could be prevented. The heart failure recognition in the public and amongst non-specialists that it's a very advanced disease and is associated with high mortality and by the time of the diagnosis, it's usually too late to intervene for preventive strategies. So with these in mind, we wanted to change the nomenclature for it to be better understood by patients and non-specialists and adopted the terminology is very similar to what was used in cancer. And thus, we use terminologies like at risk for heart failure for stage A for individuals who are asymptomatic, 
without structural or functional cardiac abnormality. And these are individuals, as you alluded to, are individuals with high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, obesity, diabetes, or exposure to cardiotoxicity. The second stage, the pre-heart failure, is one of the most important stages. The reason for that is we now have specific targeted treatment strategies for pre-heart failure. In essence, when we know those individuals that are at risk, such as hypertension, coronary artery disease, diabetes, and obesity, if those individuals are defined to have a predilection for heart failure, i.e. that they're at higher risk for future development of heart failure, and if they were to be treated for specific preventive strategies for prevention of heart failure, we could abort development of heart failure. With these in mind, also with the recognition of the role of the biomarkers, the criteria for pre-heart failure has been changed. In the past, it was individuals without symptoms or signs and with either structural or functional cardiac abnormality. And the new definition actually entails recognition of abnormal biomarkers. So patients who are without symptoms or signs with either structural or functional or cardiac biomarker abnormalities such as elevated natriuretic peptide levels or elevated cardiac troponin in the setting of exposure to cardiotoxicity. So we right now emphasize necessity to screen those individuals at risk to capture development of pre-heart failure. So the specific patient example that we have, we assume is not pre-heart failure. But if we were to do, let's say, an EKG or chest X-ray, or if that individual were to have, let's say, natriuretic peptide levels, that individual may actually be diagnosed as pre-heart failure if any of those are abnormal. So the emphasis in this case is it's a young individual unlikely to have had any diagnostic imaging and or screening or EKG. And thus, at this stage, due to the hypertension, certainly is recognized to be at risk. But let's say EKG reveals left ventricular hypertrophy or chest X-ray reveals cardiomegaly. That individual actually will be with structural cardiac abnormality. And it's also important to recognize that his blood pressure is uncontrolled at, if I remember correctly, 146 over 90. And in individuals who are at risk for heart failure in stage A, the optimal blood pressure control should be less than, to a target of less than 130 over 80. And regarding his exercise performance, he's a personal trainer, which is wonderful, and exercises daily, which is wonderful. The things to keep in mind, weightlifting and cardio exercises, when done perhaps in the right balance, are good for cardiac health. But we also need to recognize the exercise regimen should not only entail cardio resistance or resistance type of exercises, but may increase the afterload. So in his setting, we would like to look at his blood pressure profile, style of exercise, um, instruct him to do more of the cardio type of exercises and also emphasize that he should quit tobacco smoking and also emphasize that the more of the lifestyle modification measures that are implemented, the higher likelihood of prevention of heart failure. Meaning, if this individual were to control the blood pressure, bring it to normal level, quit tobacco, 
eat healthy, exercise every day with a cardio profile, not gain weight, not have hyperglycemia, the risk of future heart failure would be significantly reduced. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss this case. And this is a common scenario that we see in the clinic. And I guess for a young individual at age 23, I do recognize that population-based screening measures such as natural peptide-based screening may not be implemented, but I think the field is evolving and we need to recognize individuals that are at higher risk. And if this individual were to have an EKG and or a chest X-ray, and if the cardiac abnormalities are detected, recognize that individual transitions from at risk to pre-heart failure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Boskert. That was a really wonderful discussion.